Acts 13, verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. The word of the Lord. We continue our series, Against All Odds, How the Name of Jesus Spreads. We're looking at the book of Acts at what the early Christians did and believed. Now, if we're going to have a robust Christian faith today, our faith must match the faith as it has been revealed to us in the scriptures. Now, perhaps based on your cultural conditioning, you think that to worship God, you need a fog machine and mood lighting and an electric guitar and air conditioning. But what if God sends you to a remote village in Africa where worshiping God happened in a hundred degree weather with only a drum and dancing and very loud voices? Would you be able to worship there? And would you be able to see that all those other things you're used to and the coffee, the donuts, the bathrooms, none of those things is essential to the worship of God or to the Christian faith. But then what is? What is essential? See, answering that question is part of the value of digging into Acts. Because as the early Christians were spreading the name of Jesus, what were they spreading about him? Now, people always live with a sense that their time is the time of grand destiny. Their generation is the greatest generation. There was a book by this title back in 1998, The Greatest Generation. We live with a sense of destiny. It is now. right? We must save the planet now. If we don't act now, the planet will be ruined by 2050. John F. Kennedy, in his day, announced the daring goal of sending a man to the moon by the end of that decade. That's a sense of destiny. Companies are advised by business consultants to have a mission statement that is as big as the world. It's not enough for you to be the best in your country. You want the world. And so Amazon's mission statement is to become Earth's most customer-centric company. Southwest Airlines to become the world's most loved, most flown, most profitable airline. FedEx, the world on time. We live with a sense of the urgency of our time, the greatness of our cause. But if every generation is the greatest generation, aren't all generations the same? If every time is of great urgency, isn't all time the same? Now, I bring this up because as we seek to answer this question of what's of the essence to the Christian faith, our text for today is going to answer not only what's of the essence to the Christian faith, but also that not all time is the same. See, people tend to live with an inflated sense of the importance of their time, their context, but there's one notable exception. And that is the early Christians proclaimed that in their time, in their context, the greatest event ever took place. It could not be rivaled, equaled, or superseded. What's the event? The resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. Everything God ever promised, he fulfilled by raising up Jesus. Everything God ever promised, he fulfilled by raising up Jesus. Now, this is a monumental claim. You cannot have true Christian faith without believing that everything God ever promised, he fulfilled by raising up Jesus. I mean, the hope of the previous 2,000 years for the Jewish people, which had left many open chapters and puzzles and questions, had finally landed on that generation. Would they miss it? The people of Judea in Paul's day missed it by and large. What about the people that he was speaking to right there in Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch? What about us? Will you miss the urgency of our time right now? Not because of something that's going to happen, but because of something that's already happened. Everything God ever promised, he fulfilled by raising up Jesus. So let's talk about the fulfillment, the, the, the hope, and the challenge. Let's begin with the fulfillment. Raising up Jesus is the good news. Now, remember that we're in the middle of a sermon that Paul was uh, preaching to the people in Pisidian Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, to them... Paul, before we get to where we're going to read today, uh, we saw this last week. He recounted for them, he rehearsed for them many important chapters in the history of God's people, Israel, including God's choice of Abraham, their sojourn in Egypt, the Exodus, the 40 days in the wilderness, the possession of the land under Joshua, the period of the judges, culminating in the monarchy with Saul, but ultimately with David. Now, when Paul got to David, he skipped about a thousand years to Jesus. But before he tells them the significance of Jesus, he brings up John the Baptist, who preached a message of repentance, of the need for change in the people. And that's where we're picking it up today. So we're entering in the middle of this sermon. And he goes on in verse 26. Paul says, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. So Paul says that this is a message of salvation. This is a message that is good for them. And yet he says, but they missed it. The people of Jerusalem missed it. He says the people of Jerusalem and their rulers. So these are the people at the center of the Jewish faith. You could not get any more at the center of the faith. And they missed it. That would be today like saying that the big three auto companies 
Ms. The Electric Vehicle Revolution. I mean, if some farmers, some random farmers on the mountains of Peru missed the electric vehicle revolution, we would all just say, yeah, of course. What do they know? But the big three? I mean, that's what he's saying. He's saying in Jerusalem, they missed. They did not recognize that David's descendant promised in the scriptures had arrived. And it gets worse. It's not just that they missed him. You know, he says to them, in condemning him, they fulfill the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. So it's not just that they did not recognize him. They condemned him. So they rejected him. But in their rejection, they actually fulfilled what the prophets had said in their scriptures, which they read every Sabbath. Now, remember where Paul is. He's in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and they just got done reading the prophets. So this could not get, I mean, this is getting too close for comfort. No one likes being the villain in a story. You know, in the multiple hundreds of books that have been written about World War II since the war, Hitler is a villain in these books. But that's not how he would write himself into a book if he was writing it. In fact, in his own book, Mein Kampf, which means my struggle, he promoted and defended the main tenets of Nazism, the rightness of his cause. No one sees themselves as the villain of a story. Okay, so, so think about what Paul is making his audience reckon with. He has rehearsed for them much of their story with God, their history with God, which they fully agreed with. All the way up to and including their hope for a deliverer coming to them from David. So far, so good. But then he brings up Jesus. And he says that Jesus Christ is that deliverer, that savior. And he says that the big dogs in Jerusalem missed him. Not only did they not recognize him, they rejected him. But in rejecting him, they fulfilled what the prophets had spoken long ago. Which put him on the wrong side of history. You see, the big dogs in Jerusalem were the villains in the story. Paul's own people, the Jews. And now he's speaking in Pisidian Antioch to a mainly Jewish audience, his own people. This is very convicting. What Paul is bringing up to them, the rejection of Jesus. He goes on and he tells them that the trial against Jesus was unfair. And yet the people still ask Pilate to have him executed. And so he's executed. He's hung on a cross. And then they take him down from the cross once he's dead. And they laid him in a tomb. And then here comes the apocalyptic event. He says, but God raised him from the dead. And then he says that he appeared, that Jesus appeared to many he says, to those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. So he didn't just appear to everyone. They are now his witnesses to our people, he says. And then Paul makes a mind-blowing statement. He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Now, what had God promised their ancestors? Oh, where do we begin? That all families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. That the obedience of the nations would belong to a king from Judah's line. That David would always have an heir on the throne. Always. That Israel would be a light to the nations. That the greatness of the Messiah's government and peace would have no end. 
that in righteousness they would be established. Tyranny would be far from them. They would have nothing to fear. That God would make an everlasting covenant with them. God, I mean, there are so many promises that God made, but the linchpin that makes them all hang together, the thing without which none of them would come to pass is raising up Jesus. That's what Paul is announcing. Their cleansing, their healing, their glory among the nations. He is their Sabbath rest, their holy temple, their perfect sacrifice. He is their high priest, their ultimate prophet, their everlasting king. But the thing that shows fulfillment Paul says, is that God raised him from the dead. Dead people stay dead. But the one person that God brought back from death becomes the undoing of death and of everything gone wrong with this world. I mean, think about it. If death doesn't apply to you, if death can't touch you, you become the ruler of a new world world order and that's incredibly good news for a people living in a world that is wasting away and nobody denies that our world in its present form is wasting away so let me ask you what do you say is the good news what do you say is the good news that evil can't harm you that the church is a light to the nations that God will bring you good, that you have people who love you now. All those things are true, but they're not the good news. The good news is that everything God ever promised, he fulfilled by raising up Jesus. That's the fulfillment. Let's talk about the hope. The hope, raising up Jesus means a new creation in the making. Raising up Jesus means a new creation in the making. Look at verse 34. He goes on. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere. You will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Okay, so now Paul brings up three Old Testament scriptures to make his point about the raising of Jesus. And the first one that he brings up is Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 was a very important psalm for the apostles in uh, talking about and proving the live death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter in Acts 4 brings up this psalm. He brings up the first words of the psalm, which Peter repeats in Acts 4. And he says this, why do the nations rage? He's quoting Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then Peter points to the fulfillment of those words. He says, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So Peter, in essence, is saying what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem uh, under Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the people of Jerusalem was the fulfillment of Psalm 2. 
That was in Acts 4. Well, now in chapter 13, Paul, in a different context, brings up a different verse, also from Psalm 2. He brings up verse 7. Paul says, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So this is verse 7. And this Psalm is making a remarkable point. The point that this Psalm is making is that in response to the hostility from the nations and from the peoples of the world, God issued a decree. And that decree was the establishment, the establishment of his son on Mount Zion as the ruler over all the nations of the world. Verse 8 of that same psalm, God says, I will make the nations your inheritance. And so Paul here deploys this psalm to an audience that knows it very well uh, to let them know that right there at the head of their Psalter, I mean, it's Psalm 2. They had recited this psalm for many, many generations, many centuries. And he's bringing it up to remind them that God's response to the hostility of the nations was to anoint his son. Then he goes on and Paul says that God raised Jesus from the dead so that he would never be subject to decay. And he brings up two other scriptures in this regard. The first one is Isaiah 55 verse 3. There Paul says, as God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Now, the key verse here is the word you, because it's plural. So he's saying, God, you know, I, uh, God is saying, I will surely give you all. It's hard for us in English to say, you know, to know whether you is singular or plural. It's the same word, but it's a plural word. And what God is saying is he's promising to his people after the exile. So this is 400 plus years after David. God says to his people, I will give you all the sure holy blessings that I made, the promises I made to David. And so now this, this verse focuses on the distribution of God's promises from David to all of God's people and the way that God is going to distribute these promises that were given to a single person, to David, is through Jesus Christ, through the one who did not see decay which then leads to the last quotation that Paul brings up from the Old Testament, which is Psalm 16. He brings up Psalm 16. It's a Psalm of David. And he quotes verse 10, which says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And then he makes the quite obvious point that we read about, about in verses 36 and 37. He says, now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. His point is, clearly Psalm 16 was not written about David. Because David served God in his generation. He served God's purpose. Then he died. He was buried and his body decomposed. But the one that God raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, did not see decay. So clearly this psalm was not written about David. It was written about Jesus. So those are all the different verses that he's bringing up to make this point. And he uses the word decay four times in this section. David's body decayed. The body of Jesus did not see decay. And I just want us to marvel for a second at what he is saying. Because everything in this life 
decays. Everything. Do you, do you wrestle with this? Maybe plastic does not, which is not a good thing. But everything in this life decays. I mean, our hair, our hair. You know, for some reason, my hair likes the shower drain. I don't know what it is. I'm like, why do you insist on hanging around this shower drain? What's down there? That's not up here. But everything in life decays. Our bodies, our bodies are on a trajectory toward decay. No one is exempt. Nobody. Everybody is headed for decay. It doesn't matter how much you work out, how healthy you eat, uh, all the money that you may have to put into your body. It does not matter. That fine body of yours is moving toward decay. All that healthy eating and exercising and anything else you do is simply delaying the decaying. You know this. Now, should our answer be, oh, well, then who cares? You know, I'm just going to stop fighting it. I'm just going to eat junk and stop exercising. Well, you could do that, but that'd be dumb. Right? See, we're only given 70, 80 years of life, maybe 90. And we're to make the best, most God-honoring, wisest choices with the short life that we're given. Our short life is not an excuse for laziness. But here's where I want you to marvel, okay? Marvel at this. Jesus' body did not decay. It's the only one. His body stayed in the tomb only a few hours. And then he started breathing again. He still had the the scars from the cross on his body, but there were no wounds open. There was nothing that had to heal. I mean, think about this. After being beaten and slashed almost to a pulp, he had a radiant body, a glorious body. And 2,000 years later, today, he still has the same glorious body. Ponder this. And you will have a body like his if you believe in him. And everything in this world will be made new. This is the ultimate fulfillment of our hope as Christians. Elsewhere, Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Church, our ultimate hope is the redemption of our bodies, the remaking of this world. The gym will not redeem your body. Probiotics will not redeem your body. Surgeries will not redeem your body. Only the return of Christ will redeem our bodies. Is this your ultimate hope? Is this the hope that answers all your sorrows and rights all your wrongs and energizes your daily work and living? Is your hope, your ultimate hope in what God will do in the world or what you can do with your life? The hope that we have is that the raising of Jesus means a new world order is in the making. 
Do you settle for much less? Let's close with the challenge. The challenge here, raising up Jesus demands an answer now. Demands an answer now. Here's how Paul concludes. Verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Okay, so having given all of this explanation, and I realize that this is essentially an Easter message in the fall, but having given all this explanation, Paul now tells them why it matters, why it matters to them. He says, therefore, so everything that we heard and read last week, plus what he says this week, he now says, therefore. So here's where it's leading. Here's why it matters to you. And he tells them two things, forgiveness and freedom forgiveness and freedom. He says, forgiveness of sins. This was another promise that God had made to his people in the old covenant. He says, now it's offered through Jesus Christ. And then he says, freedom from sin. The law of Moses could not make anyone right with God. Not because there was anything wrong with the law, but because they could not keep it. They were unable to keep it. Not only that, the blood of animals, the blood of the thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices could not make them clean, could not set them free. It was merely pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 10 makes this point really well. But now by believing in Jesus, Paul says that he is God's anointed son. The fulfillment of those three Old Testament scriptures he quoted and many others. The one that God raised from the dead. You can have forgiveness of sins and freedom, freedom from sin. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Because I want you to ponder for a few moments the difference between thinking that your good deeds make you good or knowing that Jesus makes you good. Now, I know that you think you're hearing me. Many of you are not hearing me. Recently, I talked to someone who has lived in the church their whole life. And they still think. I mean, they still think I was talking to this person and my heart was breaking. Because I saw the anguish on their face. But they still think that their good deeds means that God will bring good to them and their bad deeds means that bad will come. And I was just hurting as I was talking to this person. But I know this is how billions of people live. And yet there's so much wrong with that mindset. First of all, it makes you angry. And I don't mean like you stub your toe angry. I mean like if you were a house all the walls in that house would be painted with anger. It makes you angry that you think you've done enough good to deserve favor from God, and yet the good that you're seeking is not coming your way. And so it leaves you thinking, why? Why is God treating me this way? And you're angry. But second, we rig the scales. We rig the scales when it comes to assessing 
our behavior. Listen, we all understand this mindset. Good comes if I do good things. Bad comes if I do bad things. We all understand it because it's the default setting of the fallen human heart. But here's how we assess our behavior. We minimize our wrongdoing by comparing ourselves to others and we maximize our good deeds through the most random definitions. That's what we do. So for example, someone could live an extremely selfish life and think they're crushing it. Why? Because all they have to do is just go online and read about people who are killing and cheating and doing all kinds of other nefarious things and their bad deeds get a pass. They get a pass. Why? Because you reason how. At least my bad deeds are not as bad as theirs. We all do this. And then when it comes to their good deeds, we maximize them. You know, basically anything that we do out of self-interest qualifies. Holding a job, paying taxes, caring for your children, weeding your yard. I mean, all kinds of things. And yet, a part of us knows that we are guilty. Deep down, there's a part of us that knows that we are guilty. So we go back and forth between excusing ourselves and accusing ourselves. Excusing ourselves and accusing ourselves. Back and forth, back and forth. Listen, therapists, psychiatrists, counselors deal with this all the time. With this kind of mindset that people have. Excusing themselves, accusing themselves. That's no way to live. You see, the gospel is good news. Because the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, frees you from the good deed, bad deed duality. He frees us from living that way. Listen, your bad deeds really are bad. They really are bad. And your good deeds are not nearly as good as you think they are. There's a lot of selfishness mixed in there. So what Jesus did was he came and he lived in such a way where he was perfect in every way. And he paid for all of your bad deeds so that you don't have to minimize them or hide them. And he's the only person whose good deeds are completely good without so much as a tincture of selfishness mixed in. So that we don't have to assign such value to our good deeds because it makes us proud. Do you see? So we don't have to hide our bad deeds, nor do we have to hang our value on our good deeds. That is freedom. That is true, true freedom. And it's yours when you believe in Jesus Christ. When when we trust him, that he is who God says he is. He forgives us all of our sins and we are set free. And from the moment that we start trusting him, he begins working in us, transforming us into something wonderful, beautiful to behold. Have you been forgiven? Have you been set free truly from this good deed, bad deed duality? Because I promise you that there are many of you, even if you've been in church for a long time, you still believe that. 
That's not the gospel. That's what every religion, other religion teaches. That's what every philosophy teaches. Have you read Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life? That's what it is. More rules for life. Paul finishes with a challenge. He finishes his sermon by giving them this challenge. In verse 40, he says, Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Remember that earlier Paul said to them that the prophets had predicted that the Messiah was going to be rejected and that the people in Jerusalem rejected him. And therefore, they ended up on the wrong side of history. And now he's saying to them, take heed that the same thing does not happen to you. He's basically saying to them, make sure that what the prophet said does not happen to you. And then he quotes God. God saying, I'm going to do something in your day that you would never believe, even if someone told you. And that something that he was going to do was raising up his son. And so now I appeal to you, please do not end on the wrong side of history. Raising up Jesus is God's ultimate work. It cannot be rivaled, equaled, or superseded. Don't look for someone else, something else, something better, something new. It's done. It's done. The only op options are watch, wonder, and perish. Because you refuse to believe that God raised his son Jesus from the dead. Or watch, wonder, and be saved. Because you embrace the son of God. Those are the options. Everything God ever promised he fulfilled by raising up Jesus from the dead. Will you end up on the wrong side of history? Do you believe or scoff at the message? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. Lord, we give you thanks for the scriptures and the power of the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures. And I pray, dear God, that even right now, as these scriptures are proclaimed, as we read about what you've done in history, and most importantly, what you did in bringing Jesus back from the dead, Lord, I pray that right now, scales would be falling from our eyes. And I pray that there would be aha moments for us, for those who have been skeptical or have never fully understood or believed the Christian message, that they would know crystal clear what that message is. You raised your son, the one that you appointed as ruler over all the nations from the dead. His body never decomposed. His body is glorious today. And in him is our future and judgment and destiny and salvation. And I pray for those who maybe have been in the church for a long time, but they still live under that duality of good comes if they do good, bad if they do bad. Father, would you free them from that? They cannot be made right by their actions, not before you. 
I pray you would free them, God, and they would know that it's in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ, that you have conquered death, you have conquered sin, you have conquered evil. And when we trust in him, we are forgiven and we are free, free, free indeed. In his name we pray. Amen.